Hello and welcome to the My VA Dayton podcast coming to you from Dayton, Ohio. This is the show where we talk with veterans in the Western Ohio region to share their stories and share what's happening at the Dayton VA Medical Center. I'm Scott Lease, your host with co-host Greg Tucker. And we have with us today an Air Force veteran from the Dayton area, Tamara A.B. Everett Brower. A.B. is a Master of Nursing. She retired from the Air Force as a colonel, where she served a distinguished career as Senior Nursing Executive Leader with extensive air medical evacuation with hospital and regional health system headquarters expertise. She has an unparalleled record of excellence in insightful decision-making, strategic policy direction, global operational and aeromedical evacuation planning, and execution. She's also known for her substantial international expertise with global health security engagement and is also a talented educator and passionate mentor. Additionally, she was a military consultant to the Air Force Surgeon General for air medical evacuation and flight nursing. She now serves as a senior health scientist and nurse researcher with the Air Force Research Laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Welcome, A.B. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We are thrilled to have you here with us today. Uh, before we get to know a little bit more about you, and we've got a great guest here with us today because she's got a great story to tell, uh, but before we get that story... <laughs> It's time to play Don't Tell Me, I Think I Know That. This is the game where we put our guests to the test of their knowledge of military trivia, a game where our listeners can play along to see if their minds are mired in mounds of military minutia as ours are. Are you ready to take that challenge, A.B.? You betcha. All right. Now, here's your first question. Where do airmen go for meals while on an Air Force installation? Now, you're, you're an old Air Force retired colonel. You should know exactly where you send the airmen for meals. Would it be A, the dining facility, B, the mess tent, C, the chow line, or D, Outback Steakhouse? <laughs> um, I will say the dining facility. That is correct. The Air Force does not have chow halls or mess tents. It has dining facilities or DFACs, as they're sometimes called, uh, referring to the building in which airmen uh, who do not have time to go to the BX or the food court or Burger King. Uh, that is that is uh, not the chow hall. It's actually offensive uh, to senior enlisted food service craftsmen. And that's what they call them there in the Air Force, yep. uh, if you call it the chow hall. So... Uh, it is the dining facility. So it's here, also the place where our um, younger enlisted who are on living in the dormitory, that's where they get their meals. That's right. Three times a day or more. You bet. All right. So here's your second question. Um, what is a FOD walk? Would it be A, a sobriety test conducted to see if airmen can walk a straight line? B, a trash pickup in an open field? C, to walk uh, like a duck with big webbed feet? Or D, none of the above. Well, it's a foreign object debris walk. So I guess maybe B, the way you described it. Yes, that is the right answer. Yes, you're right. FOD is an acronym for foreign object debris. Anything on the flight line that doesn't belong there and could damage the aircraft. Uh, sometimes entire units walk shoulder to shoulder, picking up whatever FOD they find out there on the flight line. Uh, airmen in non-flight line roles 
uh, will sometimes be assigned to augment uh, FOD walks. So I got to ask, AB, have you ever been on a FOD walk? I've been on several. I have too. After every air show. Uh, especially <laughs> after the air shows. There's a lot of litter on the flight line yes, after an air is. show. Uh, so here is your third and final question. You're doing fantastic. Let's keep it up. Uh, what was the first aircraft used to transport patients? Would it be A, the Spirit of St. Louis, B, the Hindenburg, C, the Curtis Eagle, or D, the Globetrotter? Well, my first thought is the Jenny aircraft. Okay. Uh, but that wasn't one of the choices. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> and I know it's not the Hindenburg. That's funny. And it's the Spirit of St. Louis or the Globetrotter. So it must be the Eagle. Yes, that's the correct answer. Process of elimination <laughs> wins out for you. In 1921, the Curtis Eagle was developed and deployed and was, was the first aircraft designed specifically for the transport of patients. It was followed in 1925 by the XA-1, which could carry two litter patients and fly a uh, surgeon in a uh, compartment behind the cockpit. Yeah. Uh, and yes, the Jenny is another aircraft uh, from that era that was uh, uh, early and, I, and if I'm not mistaken, I think that was the first that was actually uh, used in military. Right. Military transport of patients. And if I'm correct, it had a red cross on it. It did. It mm -hmm. did. Uh, a flight nurse would know that. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. So, Greg, what is AB1 for playing our game today? For answering all those questions correctly, we have a set of four Dayton VA industrial strength chip clips designed by NASA's aerospace engineers to keep your chips crisp on your next stellar space journey or wherever you may be traveling in the near future. All compliments of the Dayton VA. So be careful with those chip clips. They are very powerful. They are industrial strength. We don't want you to get your fingers stuck in them uh, and highly prized. So wow, thank you. Thanks you for are the safety more, warning. You are more than welcome. Yes, that was your safety briefing for the day. So we're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, uh, we'll hear more from AB about what she's doing today. Even an Iraq vet like me who's in really good shape needs good health care especially when it's top quality and convenient. And it's not just for men. In fact, aren't you a vet, Patricia? Yeah, I served in the Air Force. When I come to the VA, the people understand veterans' needs. I get great care with good doctors and nurses and state-of-the-art facilities. Because, hey, I was there and I earned it. And if you deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, including with the Guard or Reserves, you did too. Here's another thing. I'm within five years of my time over there, so there's no copay for any service-related condition. That makes a difference to me. So why not come in today? When you check in, you'll get a full medical exam, first thing. Free for vets at the VA. Thanks, Doc. So check us out and see you here. The Dayton VA changed my life. There was a time I was jobless and homeless, didn't know where to turn for help. I felt like there was no hope for me. Then I learned about the Dayton VA. They helped me find the help I needed to get back on track. I received support, got a job, found a place to live. I got my life back. Don't wait another day to see how the VA may help you. I'm a vet and it's my VA. Make it your VA today. To enroll, call 937-268-6511, extension 5336, or visit dayton.va.gov. 
And we're back with retired Air Force Colonel Tamara A.B. Averett Brower. Uh, Tamara, you know, you've got a very, very impressive resume. Um, and I got to tell you, your, your education is very impressive. But what you're doing right now uh, at the Air Force Research Laboratory, I mean, you are you're like you're like a rocket scientist almost. Well, not exactly. Yes. Um, well, you're... there are some around, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> but it's always good to meet a few. <laughs> So tell us, what do you do? So as a senior health scientist at the Air Force Research Laboratory and as a nurse, that's what I bring to the table, um, I work in the en route care research section um, of our research laboratory uh, within what we call our 7-11th human performance wing. Um, and so we have a research arm, kind of the Airman Systems Directorate research arm, as well as the U.S. Air Force School of Aerospace Medicine um, in part of the 7-11th human performance wing. And so... We're really looking at, from an en route care perspective or the aeromedical evacuation perspective, we're really looking at um, what's our knowledge, what's the evidence um, behind the patient care, behind the patient experiences, and how can we help that experience be better? How can we help the healthcare people who are caring for patients um, be better prepared for that environment? How can, you know, are there technologies that can assist in those environments? Um, and so that's really the focus of the research that we work on. Um, we're not doing, at least in our area, you know, bench level cellular research. There are people who do that, but that's not us. So we're more into the um, applied and advanced technology demonstration realm. So our goal is actually to try to get things that are closer to solutions um, into the hands of the people who need them. So I'd say our war fighters, but also our healers. Sure, absolutely. So tell us in, in layman's terms uh, what, what the average person could understand. What kind of technologies are out there uh, that you guys are on the verge of um, actually employing? Well, uh, the air medical evacuation mission space is basically recreating a hospital in the back of a cargo aircraft. And that's kind of the way the Air Force does that. And so we're able to carry what we say beans and bullets in to a location and carry wounded out. Uh, so we convert a cargo aircraft into a flying hospital, quite literally. We bring on all the equipment, um, the oxygen. We have to plan for the electrical requirements. We bring on the medical equipment. Uh, we bring on the medications, dressings, everything like that. And then we bring the patients on, and we care for patients during those flights that could be short, 30-minute um, flights, or could be long, 12 hours or longer flights. Long way from the Jenny because you use oh, yes. some very big aircraft now. What kind of aircraft yes. uh, do you use for air medical airlift? So a really long range um, aircraft now, the Cadillac really is our C-17 cargo mm -hmm. aircraft. Um, and it's a beautiful space. It's large. It's well lit. It's nice environment. And it was designed with air medical evacuation capability in mind. So it has oxygen actually on board that's ready for patient use. Uh, and it has an electrical system that supports medical equipment very easily. And it's easily configurable. So you can mix um, cargo and patients. Uh, you can have a variety of different kind of configurations. Um, and so the C-17 is really quite lovely that way. Um, the one we use for shorter haul missions, kind of in the dirt, if you want to say that, is the C-130. Um, and again, man, talk about a workhorse aircraft. It's been around a long time. We have lots of versions of it yes, now. It We're up to the been. J model or more, but... The four-fan trash can. Uh, you betcha. Well, except <laughs> now some of them... Well, there's still four fans, but the blades have changed. Now. Yes, they have. So instead of four propeller um, blades, they're like six mm -hmm. now. Um, and it's also really nice for air medical evacuation in a different way. Um, every one of our C-130s in the U.S. inventory has the ability to do some... Uh, 
patient carrying capability in it. So you can just drop some um, litter straps from the ceiling and you can bring out the litter stanchions, you can hook them up and you can load. So you can convert that aircraft pretty quickly. Um, so you don't have to carry on something to actually hold the litters or the stretchers. But you have to carry on everything else, just like you do on the C-17. But in this circumstance on the C-130, you have to bring your oxygen on board as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a matter of, you know, the, those are kind of our workhorse aircraft. Um, we've also used um, for the last, well, over 20 years, um, the KC-135, um, because it has the ability to hold six cargo pallets. And so in that cargo compartment space of the tanker aircraft, you can actually put cargo pallets or patients or combination. Right. Up in that so space. the other two aircraft you were talking about primarily are uh, just for hauling cargo or personnel. The, Correct. The C-135 is actually a refueling aircraft. The KC-135, yes. KC-135, yes. It's a refueling tanker that also has a cargo carrying capacity. It's right. a small one, um, but it works. And for us in aeromedical evacuation, we ended up using that aircraft. They did a big analysis back in uh, uh, just before 2000. And the choice to use that aircraft, because our C-141s were going to be retired, they were kind of our long-haul aircraft, and the C-17s weren't totally online yet as far as being available. Um, but the KC-135s, there was a large number of them, and they had really long legs, meaning they could fly a long distance, mm -hmm. um, and there was a lot of them. So what a great choice. And the numbers of patients that they could carry met our needs, basically. So we could use those for some of our longer distances, for example. So we started using them in the Pacific. We used them um, out of the desert to Germany um, for you know smaller patient loads. Um, but if you needed to bring out 30 liters, that aircraft would not be um, as feasible. Um, the challenge with the KC-135 or any of what we call the high deck aircraft um, is loading. So you have to have special ground handling equipment, um, almost like civilian catering trucks, mm -hmm. to be able to get the patients up to that high right. deck to, to be able to load them into the cargo space. So we figured all those things out and you figure out a way to make things work. So that's yeah. been the, it's been a great adventure part of this air medical evacuation experience. The things I've learned about the operational air force, um, what the demands on aircraft are, um, how we compete from a patient movement mission perspective. Um, sometimes we're not the very most important mission. We're right up there, mm -hmm. but not always the number one. Sometimes we're number two. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, so we use, and that's again our U.S. system, um, using what we call common user aircraft, so cargo aircraft. In this way, we kind of get the best bang for the buck out of the aircraft. So um, you were talking about the larger aircraft. Are mm -hmm. there not smaller aircraft too? Sure. The um, C-130 we use for short haul, um, but we can also use what I'll, I will phrase as any passenger capable aircraft mm -hmm. you can put a patient in. So if there's a place to put passengers like duty passengers or traveling folks, you can put patients in it. You just have to figure out what else you need to adapt it. So the very smallest of those that we've used um, relatively consistently is the C-21. Right. Which is part of our operational support airlift. Uh, basically a Learjet. Yes. Um, and that's a really interesting process trying to get a patient into a C-21. I've done it and it is an interesting process. Not that they're 
you quite have to tip them on their sides, but it's mm-hmm. kind of close because, you know, getting a litter through that little bitty door and making the turn is very interesting process. Right. Doable, right. but very interesting. <laughs> but not every patient's on a litter also, <laughs> Absolutely correct? correct. But yeah, so the C21 is the small one. We've also used a C12. Um, we've also used C5 aircraft. And because um, there's a big troop compartment upstairs in the C5 aircraft, so you can put patients up there. Again, interesting loading challenge because it's pretty high off the ground and the ladder from the cargo compartment up to the troop compartment is kind of long and skinny. Um, But they have just, interestingly enough, Air Mobility Command has just approved a configuration to use the C5 cargo compartment for patient movement. Um, And that's very exciting. I mean, it just kind of expands what's possible. Um, We've used KC-10s. I mean, if... Like I said, if it is passenger capable, uh, meaning it has a good environment, people can breathe the air, that sort of thing, right. um, we can find a way to put patients in it. Absolutely. Um, that, you know, that's got to be a, a, an amazingly rewarding career to actually help uh, save lives uh, by transporting those folks. If I can add mm-hmm. that hearing everything maybe that you just mentioned, that that really sounds like, or not that, it is a evolving career field. Very much. As far as for uh, future Absolutely. Uh, medical care or health care providers. Absolutely. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, the ability to transport patients um, literally around the globe, which we do. Um, and I think what's unique about the U.S. system um, compared to some other systems, because a lot of the people can do what we do and on some of the same aircraft, frankly. So the Australians fly C-17s and fly patients. The British fly C-17s and fly patients. Um, the folks in New Zealand fly patients on a different kind of an aircraft. So there's a variety of countries that obviously move patients. We're not the only ones. The Germans do too. Um, but what's unique, about, I think, about the U.S. military and our approach to moving patients is the common user aircraft. So using the cargo aircraft in its multiple roles but also the large numbers of patients that we actually carry for really long distances. So you can carry a patient load of 50 or 60 patients and fly them for 12 or 18 hours or longer, possibly. Um, And that's quite unique. And we also, because it is a full hospital that's recreated in the back of the aircraft, you can bring on an intensive care unit with a specialty team if you need it. Um, We'll carry pediatric patients, geriatric patients. We even carry military working dogs because they're also mm-hmm. patients. Um, so the and, and the crew variety. really is customized each time depending on the needs of the, of the patients, correct? We start with a basic crew of two flight nurses and three aeromedical evacuation technicians. That's a standard crew. So it is a nurse-led team, which is quite unique, frankly. Um, and then we add Um, a critical care team if we need that. We add a neonatal intensive care team if we need that. Um, And if we bring on uh, maybe a burn team, for example, if it's a burn patient, and we're going to carry him to San Antonio to the the burn center there. Um, And so we can tailor, absolutely. But the basic foundational crew is two nurses, two flight nurses and three aeromedical evacuation technicians. And then you can add an additional nurse and technician to extend the duty period from 16 hours to 24 hours. The idea is to allow for some periods of rest in that time frame. Um, and then if the patient load is very high or the acuity is very high because they're very sick, you can add additional members as needed. So, yes, you can tailor. And if it's on a small aircraft like a C-21, you can also pare it down. Mm. 
because <laughs> you some, might need to because yeah. there's not enough seats for everybody <laughs> right. if you're on yeah. a tiny little aircraft. So, Absolutely. so yes, there is that ability to pair and tailor as needed. So, as in, with your job with the research laboratory, um, what do you guys what do you guys do exactly? Uh, is it developing the, the the process for care on the aircraft? Is it looking for better aircraft to use or better ways to configure the aircraft? Um, what we're working on probably right now. Um, part of what we do are knowledge product development. Um, and so part of that is creating the knowledge, generating the knowledge, or, eva or evaluating the available knowledge that's out there. It's like, what do we know about the pathophysiology of this injury at altitude, for example? So what happens to a person with pneumonia when you put them on an airplane and you subject them to hypoxia, you know, decreased partial pressure of oxygen, you subject them to decreased barometric pressure? Um, decreased humidity, variable temperature, noise, vibration, those kinds of things. So what happens to that person physiologically? And then what can you do to help mitigate that, to treat that in flight so that they don't either deteriorate or at least they stay stable or potentially improve in flight? So there are medications you give, fluids you give, that sort of thing. So there's a variety of questions in there. And part of it is using research altitude chambers, which we have available at Wright-Patterson, um, and studying that, um, also evaluating live patient missions and looking at that, uh, and then um, comparing that with available medical literature, um, and then kind of putting that all together, and then working with Air Mobility Command, who's the lead command for all of aeromedical evacuation, and saying, this is what we understand about the evidence that's out there that supports your choices in practice and clinical practice, that may guide policy, and that may help them choose, make equipment selections. So we are looking with um, cooperating with them and across the joint space, for example, in looking at the next generation of IV pump. So interestingly enough, that's more difficult than it sounds. A piece of medical equipment can't just get on every airplane. So things that work in the hospital and work great on the ground may or may not work in the airplane. Because of altitude or... or Every, pressure or everything. the so environment. It, so it's the environment. So you have to make sure that the medical device, whether it's an IV pump, for example, or a cardiac monitor, that it performs clinically as it's supposed to in that altitude environment, but that the aircraft doesn't interfere with the device as well, mm. and that the device doesn't interfere with the aircraft. Yes. So that's why you can't just put any piece of medical equipment on board. So it's it has like to be- like turning your cell has, phone off or any other- right. yep. Yeah, and there was a reason we did that to start with, right? because of the interference, and mm -hmm. we don't know, and what's it going to do with navigation, and depending on the generation of development, I mean, sometimes they're more susceptible, less susceptible. So all those things, any device we put on an aircraft has to be tested, has to be approved, and um, so it goes through a safe-to-fly process, um, and it's subjected to vibration and... Um, interference and rapid decompression, which is a risk. And if we're flying on a KC-135, a tanker, for example, it goes through an explosive vapor chamber testing. Because I you think can't, that would be a good thing. Because you can't have sparks right. on an aircraft. And so when we plug things together on a KC-135, you have to zip time so they don't accidentally come unhooked and create a spark in the environment. So a lot to consider, a lot, a lot oh to Oh my research. goodness, yeah. it's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's probably never ending. So your research is primarily for the Air Force. Uh, yes. But I'm assuming that it's also shared extensively. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we work um, 
closely and have lots of good dialogue, lots of good collaborations with our Army partners at the U.S. Army Aeromedical Research Laboratory at Fort Rucker. Um, we work with Navy counterparts to some degree, um, but the issues of moving patients are common threads for all services. We have to figure out what those interface points are, but we also talk a lot about equipment. So if you're going to start with a piece of equipment in the field with an Army soldier, for example, can you continue that piece of equipment onto an Army helicopter, onto an Air Force aircraft, onto another Air Force aircraft, into a hospital? Um, and so we try to think through some of those things. That And, and does this uh, research not actually have an impact internationally as well? Uh, with, absolutely, because uh, we have conversations with all of our international partners. Yes. So we're on a lot of NATO working groups. Um, and then with my time in the Pacific, you know, we just have a lot of um, partnerships at a, and um, alliances and coalitions that we put together. And so we try to learn a lot about each other, what your systems are, what aircraft you use, what you can teach us, you know, what we can learn from you as well as, you know, what what we have to share. So there's a lot of partnering back and forth. We do that in exercises. We do that in a variety of settings. Well, so, that's that's a wealth of information, and I cannot imagine, uh, you know, it, it seems like that would be endless research, uh, not just because there's so many factors to consider, but right. always developing technologies. Yes. Um, and, and you came to this uh, because you actually uh, dedicated your life to a career in flight nursing. How did that happen? How did you, why, why did you choose going into the military and going to the Air Force and then becoming a flight nurse? Well, I was always interested in the military, I guess a little bit. My dad was a Marine in the Marine Corps band. So he's very, you know, clever to say that he was with the Hollywood Marines in the band. <laughs> and so now he's one of Sousa's own. So yes. he's in Sousa's heavenly yes. band. Um, and so I knew about that. And actually in high school, I met with a Marine recruiter and said, do you have nursing? And he said, no. And I said, well, I'm not going to be a Marine then because I knew I wanted to do medicine and healthcare and nursing. Um, and so the Marine Corps wasn't a choice for me. So I went off to college uh, and then into nursing school and we're sitting around one day and one of the girls said, I'm going to go over to the ROTC department to see if they have money for school. And I said, I'll go with you. And it was a great opportunity. I'm at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln to try out the Air Force, see if I liked it and see if they liked me. And I fell in love. Um, frankly, uh, I realized I appreciated the structure that was possible as well as the opportunities. And then I knew that if I was going to be a nurse in the Air Force, I wanted to fly because that's what you do in the Air Force is you fly patients. Um, and so I knew that from the very beginning. Um, so that's what I was able to do. And my first assignment was then at Scott Air Force Base, um, working at the hospital there in medicine, oncology and critical care. And then I went to San Antonio to Wilford Hall and worked bone marrow transplant. So again, more kind of intensive critical care uh, and oncology work, which was really kind of my passion, the two of them together. And from there, I got to go to flight school because flight school then was in San Antonio at Brooks Air Force Base still. And then my next assignment was to Germany to go fly and be an air vet nurse. And so dream job, dream assignment, um, flying in Germany. So that's how I got started and fell in love with it and continued to be in love with it for the rest of my career. So but you, you mentioned that you went to the Marines. Why not the Navy? He did say that um, that their health care was provided by the Navy, but I was less interested for whatever reason. Was it the water? No, it wasn't that. It was if I can't be Marine, I'm not joining, you know. Okay. 
just because my dad had been Marine. You know? Just that the Air Force recruiter got to you later. Well, they must have offered me a better deal when I went to the yeah. ROTC oh, department. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, just great, great opportunities, great experiences. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I fell in love with it. And I really found my, my place, my niche, and I found a love of the Air Force. I think I found a love of our country, frankly. But I understood the big Air Force in a way that I never thought I would. You know, they told me in college, things you'll never find on active duty. The real Air Force, the big picture, and the regular crew chief. <laughs> <laughs> but I found some of those things because I understood now where we fit as healthcare mm -hmm. people, where we fit in the Air Force, you know, and our job was to support the mission. And so now I had a better understanding of the mission of the Air Force. And mostly on the mobility side, that was more of my experience than on the combat um, right. aircraft side, but um, it really helped. And that my job as a healthcare person in uniform was to make sure that mission was happening. Uh, and right. so well, that was always important. You say, you know, you, you focused on the mobility uh, mission, but you do have 96 hours of, of combat mm -hmm. missions uh, on a wide variety of aircraft, many of which we've already talked about before. And you've actually received the Legion of Merit and a Bronze Star. Uh, you have you've had your your duties uh, right there in the heart of things. Tell us a little bit about about your experience with that. Well, when it was time to deploy, I didn't deploy for Operation Desert Storm. My job was to stay home, and I was on whatever third tier that didn't deploy. And there wasn't a huge medical mission. We had a big footprint because we didn't know how that particular conflict was going to go. Um, and so I've always wanted to deploy because if you're going to join the military, you want to do what the military does where it happens. And sometimes, you know, back home in a nice hospital isn't what you think of at first. Um so when the opportunity came around to deploy, I was like, sign me up. Um, and that made a really big difference to me. It's just that opportunity to go out the door, to be where things happened. And so my first deployment um, was to um, um, Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan. And I was the chief nurse of the um, Craig Joint Theater Hospital there. So that was really important to me to be able to do that and to be there in that location uh, and to understand what this mission was really all about, kind of closer to the front end of it. Um, and when you're at a location, a large installation, you know, things happen. And so you have to be ready for that. So I learned about those kinds of things. Um, still inside the wire, I wasn't an outside the wire person. Um, but yeah, it was it was an incredible experience as well as that was really where I came to um, appreciate our Afghan partners um, because I worked with a lot of my the interpreters actually worked all for me that we had in the hospital because we needed them and because we interfaced with a lot of our Afghan um, partners um, when they were ill or injured. And so that was a really great experience too, just to understand that whole thing. So tell us a little bit about your experience in um in service and receiving a bronze star. That was um, that was during my time at Bagram, was just that service, frankly, um, as part of the executive leadership team there, as the chief nurse responsible for patient care, patient safety, those sort of things um, at that facility with um, our partners that we had there. I don't think we had internationals at that location in our health team, but it was very interesting working with just the variety of Patients that came through, 
um, the coalition partners that came through, our Afghan partners that came through, um, the injuries, because my background was in critical care and oncology. I'm not, I was not raised as a trauma nurse. I did some training to get ready to deploy. I went to the Baltimore shock trauma um, location for training, and which was a great experience preparation because when I got to Bagram, my job as a chief nurse was to go down and help in the trauma bay. And I'm like, okay, I've had my training. I know how to use this machine. I can push this button. I can spike this blood and push this button. Tell me what else I need to do. Do you need me to chart? I can chart. <laughs> I'm a good charter. Um, while other hands were all responding to trauma victims, that sort of thing. So, um, and you, we had a chance to see firsthand what happened. Um, you know, if a tourniquet wasn't applied properly, um, we actually saw somebody die because the tourniquet wasn't applied properly mm -hmm. and they bled out. Yeah. So those things, lessons learned and applied to try to take to the next week, the next month, the next years of conflict to say, everybody needs to really get trained on getting these things cinched down. You know, if you're going to wear them, you got to use them right. You know, and they do make a difference. Um, but that's all evidence and knowledge that came from experience that then got put into practice. Mm -hmm. So I saw that in action there. Um, we had researchers on the ground there um, collecting trauma data as part of our joint trauma system um, that then make improvements in our clinical practice guidelines that, um, you know, like I said, it's the research happening in action. It's process improvement happening. Um, but how do we make a difference for the future? Um, the things we learned about tourniquets have made a difference in civilian practice. The stop the bleed movement um, has grown out of this whole military experience and tourniquets that are closely at hand. Um, stop the bleed kits that are in airports and churches and things in all places that you didn't wish that you needed them, but they're available. So training and how to do those things because that's the number one source of preventable death right. is hemorrhage. Yeah. And if you can stop the bleeding, you can prevent that. So those were the things that I had the opportunity to to witness, to be part of, to observe, to try to make a difference in, uh, and to work with some of our Afghan partners because we had some exchange opportunities where we trained with them. They would come and visit with us and learn some techniques and um, try to take those things back into their healthcare system. Right. Well, you know, um, it's it's really great to hear this information. We, you know, your your job with the research laboratory and all your experience that you're talking about with the military and how that's shared internationally and how everyone learns from that. We uh, we find this fascinating. We're gonna we're gonna take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll hear more from AB about her experience with the Dayton VA Medical Center. With the signing of the PACT Act, VA now has a huge list of presumptive conditions attributed to burn pits or other toxins. They also have a new extensive list of locations where they presume these exposures occurred. With regard to presumptive conditions, the list includes brain cancer, gastrointestinal cancer of any type, glioblastoma, head cancer of any type, kidney cancer, lymphatic cancer of any type, lymphoma of any type, melanoma, neck cancer, pancreatic cancer, reproductive cancer of any type, and respiratory cancer of any type. Illnesses that are now presumptive include asthma that was diagnosed after service, chronic bronchitis, COPD, chronic rhinitis, chronic sinusitis, constrictive bronchiolitis or obliterative bronchiolitis, emphysema, granulomatous disease, ILD, 
pleuritis, pulmonary fibrosis, and sarcoidosis. Locations for presumptive exposure on or after August 2, 1990 include Bahrain, Iraq, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, UAE, and the airspace above any of these locations. To find out more information about how the PACT Act affects you and your VA benefits, you can also visit VA's comprehensive website about the PACT Act by visiting va.gov pact, where you'll also be able to apply for VA health care or apply for or submit a supplemental claim for VA disability. Or you can always call VA's information hotline 24-7 at 1-800-698-2411. And we're back with Air Force Colonel, retired Tamara A.B. Everett Brower. So, A.B., uh, tell us uh, tell us our listeners about um, your experience with the Dayton VA. Well, um, I knew about the Dayton VA. and as How did you learn about the Dayton VA? You said you knew about it. Well, I guess I knew it was here. Um, but when I retired, I was able to get um, still through my TRICARE coverage. Right. Um, into the 88th medical group at Wright-Patterson. And then I saw that the VA had um, put together a packed clinic out there, um, the primary care access team, primary access care team, whatever the PACT stands for, um, there. And I thought, hmm, interesting, because I had my, um, my rating and stuff like that. And um, then they called me and uh, she was awesome, she goes, did you know you're dual eligible? Would you be interested in joining our clinic? And I go, well, tell me more. <laughs> and this would be the women's clinic? No. This the, was your the primary care? Clinic. Okay, This gotcha. is the, the PAC clinic at Wright-Patterson. Okay. Um, and I can't remember. I just blanked on her name. But she was awesome because she called and she said, did you know you're eligible? I'm calling people to see who are eligible who could you know, join our clinic. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, tell me more. I'm already being seen in some other clinics within the 88th medical group. Is that going to be a problem? She goes, no, not at all. And I said, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I actually came to, um, to be a, a Dayton VA um, patient, frankly, okay. was through that. So the, the, they became my primary care providers. Uh, and I had the most amazing nurse practitioner there at first, Stephanie Cole. She's so fabulous. Um, all the best things about nursing and nurse practitioner. But she also educated me a lot about the VA and what the VA health system has to offer. Um, more than I realized. And that was very exciting. So that I was able to, um, well, I just got connected with massage um, through the VA, um, through then the I guess they call it the community care program. So mm -hmm. they um, connect me with a massage therapist. Um, and I went in and got my glasses through optometry. I had my annual exam. And then I went in and I said, I've got a little issue with some vision issues. And I had more vision issues than I realized. And they, in the optometry department, taking really great care of me. And, and it was the time I was having some other complications from some other medical conditions that I have. So I have uh, metastatic breast cancer. Uh, and that was diagnosed in 2017 after I retired in 2015. And so I started treatment there at the 88th medical group. And in the course of things on my next course of treatment, I was having a variety of side effects from that. Well, that's what ended up happening with my eyes. I was having an inflammation issue going on in my eyes that they said was really unusual. And I'm like, okay. So they took great care of me. Um, and they coordinated that with, my other healthcare team. And so that's been just a really great experience. Um, let's see, who else have I seen up there? But you've also uh, experienced some care through the women's clinic too, correct? 
I have been through the women's clinic. Well, and one of the issues is, is I know, because she's a colleague of mine, Dr. Nicole Armitage, right. who's the director of the, the Women's Veterans Program mm -hmm. for the Dayton VA. So she used to be my boss oh, really? <laughs> at the research laboratory before she retired. So she was a great supporter of mine. Um, and so we've connected that way. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I've been, you know, really honored to be recognized as one of the um, the veterans uh, recognized for the spring, summer Welcome Home Heroes yes, event. The Welcome Home event at the yes. Dayton Dragons. Yes, yes, that was fabulous. Oh my gosh, felt like a felt like a rock star or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Uh, and then we got invited out to be part of the um, inaugural uh, Veterans Day parade um, at the Dayton VA campus. In the middle of a snowstorm. Yes, it was. Impromptu snowstorm. <laughs> yes, it was uh, very interesting. But we got to ride in these beautiful Model A um, Ford, you know, the car club that it was just, it was a great experience. Um, yeah. So I've just had really wonderful experiences there. Um, I do my, a lot of my meds through the, um, the VA and I love the home delivery and the renewal options. Mm -hmm. I love the secure messaging with my healthcare team. That's worked out really, really yeah. well. So you're, you're a user of my healthy vet as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're a, you're retiree. You talked about you're a recipient of TRICARE. Yes. Uh, and you still choose to use the date and VA. Um, tell us, tell us why that is. Why, why do you rely on the, on the VA for your primary care? Um, why is that? It was convenient. Um, and it opened a variety of doors that TRICARE didn't have actually. So, um, there's some other opportunities. I've had physical therapy through the VA. Um, there's chiropractic available, which I haven't, but I'm going to get on the list for. Um, and that's not available through TRICARE. Right. So the coverages are different. Um, and that's been a grand experience. But it doesn't take away your TRICARE. It enhances no. your TRICARE. Yeah. Since I'm a dual right. um, eligible person. Um, yeah. So it's just really augmented my ability to have care and to coordinate the care. And it's worked out really well. Um, and I look forward because my husband and I, after we retired, Spent some time in our RV. We got a nice big fifth wheel and drove around the country until I got this job at the research lab. Um, and we want to do that again. We want to get back in the RV and go travel. And so I'm looking forward to taking advantage of the VA travel coordinators. There you go. <laughs> so that wherever there, I am, right. I can connect into the VA system. And that's a huge plus. It is. Um, so I'm very excited about that. Yes, because there's more VA facilities and available uh, than there are military installations. Absolutely. So, yes. Absolutely. And so very excited about that. And with uh, the new records uh, capabilities, yes. uh, you no longer or soon no longer right. have to uh, worry about where, the, where your records are. They're going to have that access. Right. Literally, wherever you go to a VA facility, they have access to your health records. Right. Well, hey, I really want to thank the time that you spent. Uh, thank you very much for the time you spent with us today. Um, you know, it's great hearing your story. It's a wonderful story. And we love hearing stories from other veterans in the Southwest Ohio region. Thanks again for coming in today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for your service and your continued service. Thank you. When I retired from the Air Force, I received my medical benefits for life through TRICARE. I didn't know I was also eligible for care through the VA, some of which I pay no copay for or an annual premium. Now I have options I didn't know I had before because of the Dayton VA. Don't wait another day to see how the VA may help you. I'm a vet and it's my VA. Make it your VA today. Call 937-268-6511, extension 2159 to enroll or visit dayton.va.gov. If you're homeless or at risk of becoming homeless, we can help. 
We offer many programs and services, including free health care, and we can help you connect with resources in your community. We help veterans who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless due to financial hardship, unemployment, addiction, depression, or transition from jail. Contact one of our care coordinators to get help with immediate food and shelter needs, including both transitional and permanent housing, job training, life skills development, and education, justice system navigation, and community reentry from jail, financial support to prevent homelessness, addiction, and depression treatment, along with health and dental care. Now, if you or someone you know that's a veteran who is homeless or at risk of becoming homeless due to financial hardship, unemployment, addiction, depression, or transitioning from jail, the VA Medical Center can help you. Contact a homeless services care coordinator to get help. Contact our health care coordinator at 937-268-6511, extension 1364. We want to once again thank our guest, retired Air Force Colonel Tamara A.B. Averett-Brower, for taking time to tell her story and her experiences with the Dayton VA Medical Center. We truly enjoy hearing stories from veterans from across the region and learning more about how they found care through the Dayton VA Medical Center. And as always, we want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind them if they are a veteran and are not enrolled to enroll with the Veterans Health Administration to receive health care benefits through the Dayton VA Medical Center. It's easy and it doesn't cost a thing. You just need to be a veteran. The simplest way to start enrollment is to call our Enrollment and Eligibility Office at 937-268-6511, extension 4105. They can schedule an appointment for you to come to the Dayton campus or help make an appointment at one of the surrounding community-based outpatient clinics located at Springfield, Richmond, Lima, and Middletown. Again, that number is 937-268-6511, extension 4105. Veterans may also enroll by visiting www.choose.va.gov slash health. While there, you can choose from applying online or by phone or by mail. It's just that simple, really. As I said before, it doesn't cost a thing to apply. So what are you waiting for? Call us today. Or if you know of a veteran who is not enrolled, have them call to start taking advantage of this benefit. If you're a veteran, it's your VA. Sign up today. Join us again for another episode of My VA Dayton with the Dayton VA Medical Center. Our episodes drop the 1st and 15th of each month. I'm Scott Lease with your co-host, Greg Tucker. Thanks again for listening to My VA Dayton.